started on this a couple weeks ago. Third John is a book that deals with the truth and our relationship to it. How are we related to the truth? How are you related to the truth? And truth is something that is, uh, that is uh, it's not something that's unrelated to life. Uh, the truth is meant to affect you. It's meant to have a, uh, an effect upon you to change your life, to, uh, to uh, impact your life in a, in a way that God wants. It's meant to govern all that we do. The, the idea for, is for us to incarnate the truth. Now, Mike talked about incarnation this morning. It was interesting that he, he was on that particular passage in, in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Um, we teach that Jesus incar- is, is God incarnate. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean that God came to earth in human flesh. He came in the, to earth in the form of a human being. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And both are true. He was a baby. He experienced all there is, there there was to be of being a baby. He was a child. He became a child and experienced childhood. Uh, he grew up to be a man. And so everything that we face in this life, he faced as humans. Um, he was God incarnate. The same author of Third John wrote the Gospel of John. And that in that book, John 1:14, as I said, it says there, and the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation, God incarnate. The Word became flesh, and, we, and, and the Word dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. People saw the glory of God as they looked at Christ. They saw who God was. When people saw Jesus, they saw God in human flesh. And why? Because Jesus is God incarnate. That's what it means. Mike talked about that this morning. Incarnate means to be embodied in flesh or to have a bodily form. And that's an illustration of what I'm talking about. We're to incarnate the truth. As believers, we are to embody the truth in our lives. We're to live out the truth. Then people can look at us and they can see what it looks like to have truth lived out in front of their very eyes. Well, in 3 John, as we covered the first half of it a couple weeks ago, we noticed that there were three men mentioned in this book. First of all, Gaius, and then a man named Diotrephes, and lastly, a man named Demetrius. The first time we, we dealt with this book a couple weeks ago, we covered the first eight verses. And we talked about Gaius. We saw that in the life of Gaius, there is a demonstration of the truth. Tonight, we're going to consider the other two men. Uh, one, in one case, the truth is going to take a big hit. And the other two men are Diotrephes and Demetrius. Uh, you know, people don't always incarnate the truth in churches like they should. We're supposed to do that. They don't always do that. Sometimes they even oppose the truth, which is always sad. And that brings us to the second man tonight a man by the name of Diotrephes. Whereas in the life of Gaius, there was a demonstration of the truth, in the life of Diotrephes, there is opposition to the truth. Opposition to the truth. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says there, I wrote, John the elder says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So we see in Diotrephes there is opposition to the truth. Now, unfortunately, Diotrephes has a warped relationship to the truth. His response to the truth is just the opposite of what it should be. And remember, John is writing as a pastor. He says in verse 1, it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius. He's writing as a pastor in this book. 
And he's got some church business to take care of, particularly in the, with diatrophies. And I'm not talking about you know, the, the plumbing situation in the restroom. I'm not talking about that. It's something more serious than that. He's got to deal with the inflated ego of diatrophies, a real serious problem. So in verse 9, he says, the pastor, Pastor John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Now, whatever this something was that he wrote, we do not know. This is not 1st or 2nd John. He's not talking about those epistles because the problem mentioned here is not even discussed there at all. But he did write something, probably a very brief letter, and now it's lost. We don't, nobody even knows what it was that he wrote. He wrote a brief letter. And uh, Diotrephes didn't like what he had to say. We know that much. And whatever it was, we don't know. It was very brief, no doubt. But obviously not inspired scripture because the Lord preserves all of his word. Whatever scripture is inspired, God has preserved it. None of it has been lost. And by the way, not everything John wrote was inspired scripture. He may have just written a note to someone, like in this case. I wrote something to the church. We don't know what. And, and now it's lost. And that happens. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter that's lost, or maybe even two, they think. Um, ne- neither one of them inspired scriptures. But whatever God intended to be scripture has not been lost. It's been preserved. The scripture says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So God's word is inspired. He keeps it. It's eternal. It's intended for every generation. It's intended to have an impact upon every generation. And so God preserves his word throughout history. But there's always a need for pastors to communicate with their people in their church. There's always that need. And this is what John did. And this is what guys like John and Paul did. And they, and they did it by means of writing letters. Not only inspired scripture, but other letters as well. And all through the centuries, people have written letters to believers in other locations that they weren't, they weren't near them. And they communicated with them that way. Um, I, I know some of you don't know what I'm talking about right now when I say letter writing, because you've never, you've never seen that. <laughs> Uh, I think of a pastor named Robert Murray McShane back in the 1800s who wrote letters to people all the time. There's a book, in fact, we have it in our library called The Memoirs of McShane. And in that book, there are many letters that he wrote to his people when he would go away on trips and write letters to people to encourage them. And in his letters, you'll see all this instruction, spiritual instruction and encouragement to people. And he wrote those letters. And today, letter writing has become a thing of the past, which is a shame, really. Because if you read the letters back in the day, you read some fascinating information that nowadays it's a quick email, right? Hey, and you send off a quick email to somebody, boom, and send it, and it's not the same thing. Or maybe a phone call, a quick phone call, or more likely, excuse me, you people that don't make phone calls anymore, it's more likely a text. I know that some of you don't know what a phone call is either. It's the thing that they talk audibly to somebody. But nowadays it's texting. And, but this is a good, it may seem like an unimportant point, but this is a good reminder to overseers, pastors, and so on, that they stay in touch with people in the church. You never know what's going on in the lives of people. And Mike's really good about this, staying in touch with people and finding out what's going on in your life. You never know what problems are on the horizon. And so John wrote this letter, whatever it was. I wrote something to the church, he says. And although John saw the need to communicate to the church, Diotrephes didn't see any need to respond to the letter. He didn't want to do it. It says here, John says, he does not accept what we say. Now, who is this guy, Diotrephes, anyway? Was he an elder in the church? Nobody knows. It doesn't tell us what he was. Uh, If he was an elder, he was certainly a poor choice to be that. Um, But at least he was, if nothing else, he was a layman that had great influence 
among people, strong influence in the church. Now, I don't know if you've seen people like this or not in churches, but I have seen people like this. And they have this negative influence on a church, but they have, they're, they, they, they're very loud. They're louder than anybody else. They want their voice to be heard, and they make sure that it is heard. And Diotrephes is one of these guys. It says here, Diotrephes loves to be first among them. Can you imagine that? He loves to be first among them. That's what an indictment that is. And that's the root of his problem. His desire is to be number one. To be number one in the church. And this statement tells us all we need to know about Diotrephes. His, he loves to be first among them. Diotrephes is nothing more than a, a person that's egotistical and selfish and self-righteous. And he's self-promoting. And he's ambitious and power-hungry. And he's out to promote his own agenda. That's all this guy is. He doesn't care about anybody else. He doesn't care about the Lord. He's got his own agenda to push, and that's what he does. He just wants to be the man, right? He wants to be in charge. And so he's not properly related to the truth. He's hardly, he, he's, he's consumed by his own need to be recognized by people. He wants to be out front so everyone knows who he is. And that's something that's not unique in the Bible. There's always been those who have promoted themselves, who have put themselves forward. And, and we've, we've had people tell us that they wanted to do that kind of thing too. And we're, we're, we're like, actually, we need to have the attitude of servanthood is what we need to start with. Let's start with being a servant first. Um, but there's people like that. Some people seem to have this certain unhealthy craving to be in a position of spiritual leadership. And if that's what you're thinking uh, that you want, then that's the wrong thought. You never want to think that way at all. But some people have this need to be heard and have this agenda they want to push. They want to be in the limelight, they think, where, the, where all the action is out in front of everybody. You know, even the disciples of Christ were not immune from this, amazingly. Look at uh, Luke chapter 22. I know we've read this recently, Mike has. <clears throat> the very disciples of Christ that he ministered to, you know, you're with Jesus all this time, right? And, and then these guys come up with something like this. Luke 22, 24. It says there, There arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. Now, why in the world... Would you think that even? You're with Christ. You're following Christ. He's teaching you. He's setting the example for you. He's humble. And then you, and his disciples are arguing who's the greatest among them. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? And Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. And so Christ set them in their place. And by the way, John the Elder was there when that happened. <laughs> the guy who wrote Third John was there when it happened. He heard this. But the point is, if even the personal disciples of Christ were affected with thoughts of pride like this, what does, that doesn't exempt us from the same potential problem does it the scriptures again and again over and over warn against pride of lifting yourself above others it says it over and over again in proverbs warning about pride pride goes before a fall there was a guy in jeremiah 50 jeremiah 45 named baruch and he had this idea of seeking personal success for himself and the lord said to him are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. 
we should never, a believer should never be seeking great things for himself as Diotrephes was. We're here to fulfill the desires of Christ, not our own agenda, our own desires. James 4 says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, if Diotrephes was walking in the truth as Gaius was earlier in the book, he would never have this need to be number one, never want to be first, and he would never want to be first. That would never happen. He would never even contemplate that at all. But he wasn't walking in, in the truth at all. He was, con- he was walking in contradiction to the truth. His love was misplaced. He loved being first. That's what he wanted. He loved to be first. But he was usurping the place that was given only for Christ because Christ should be first, right? Colossians 1 says that Christ is the head of the church. And Colossians 1.18, uh, it says so that Christ might have come to have first place in everything. And so Christ is to have first place. But whenever we put ourselves first, we are actually taking the place reserved for Christ, who is to be first in the church. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. He was driven by his own pride. And so he's got little regard for what the spiritually mature people, like John, think. He doesn't care about what they think because he's driven by his pride. 3 John verse 9 says this, He does not accept what we say. Literally, that says he does not accept us. He doesn't accept us. In other words, he doesn't acknowledge the authority of John, the spiritual authority that's been given to John. He doesn't acknowledge that. He doesn't care about that. Now, if anyone had spiritual authority, it was an apostle of Christ, right? They had great authority. And I, I tell you something, if I lived in that day, and John is writing to the church, and I, and I was able to have this lost letter, and I would be treasuring every word, and I guarantee you I'm going to listen to what an apostle says to me. I'm not going to ignore that and say, ah, I don't care what you say. And this is what Diotrephes said. The apostles possessed authority, though, from God. The apostle Paul often speaks to the authority he had from God. He says, I've been given authority for building up people and not tearing them down. And when Jesus sent the 12 disciples out in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, or it says this, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now that's serious authority, isn't it? That's some serious authority right there. Why are you not going to listen to a guy like this? John was in that group, had that kind of authority, and they didn't abuse their authority. They used it, as Paul said, to strengthen believers, to help them grow, to unify the church, things of that nature. But Diotrephes had the gall to challenge the God-given authority of the Apostle John. Can you imagine being in and, and resisting the authority given to the one of whom it says, of whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved? You're resisting his authority? It's not too bright, is it? It just shows you how foolish Diotrephes was. But it's always been this way. It's been this way throughout biblical history. You just go back through the Bible and trace this. Way back in the early part of the Bible, you can see uh, that the Lord chose Moses to be the leader, and he was invested with the authority from God. And, and Moses didn't even want to be the leader. And God made him a leader and gave him authority and said, you're, you're, you're going to lead my people. And he said, get somebody else. He said, no, you're going to be, you're going to be the one doing it. But his authority was challenged time and again. His own brother and sister stood up against him. Miriam stood up against him. Numbers 12, they they said to him, Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Moses wasn't trying to to be the big boss or anything. He was doing what God said, and they come up and challenge his authority. And the Lord says, Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
And you know what happened after that? Miriam was struck with leprosy. And they learned their lesson there. On another occasion, in number 16, Nathan, uh, Dathan and Abiram, Korah, they rebelled against Moses' authority. And what happened there? The earth opened up and swallowed them up. Moses was the one that was given authority, but his authority was challenged. The Apostle Paul's authority was challenged in the New Testament uh, at different occasions. Second Corinthians in particular, his authority was challenged by a group called the, what he called the, the false apostles, trying to challenge the, the, the authority of the true apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul's talking about his authority. He says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Paul says, I'm a true apostle. And you Corinthians are, are starting to drift and follow these guys who are false apostles, as he calls them in 2 Corinthians 11. But Paul had the, had the true uh, authority from God. They were defaming Paul's character. They were challenging his authority. But he says, I do the signs of a true apostle. And then over in 1 Thessalonians 2.6, he says, Paul says, Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. He said, we could have asserted our authority against you, but we were gentle among you. And we were careful with you. And so Paul had authority. And his authority did not originate with himself. It came from God. It was God-given authority. So even the Apostle Paul had his authority challenged. And then you get to the end of the first century where John is writing these letters. And the authority of the last living apostle is challenged. The authority of the Apostle John, amazingly. Diotrephes stands up and challenges John. But John is playing the role of pastor here. He said he's not going to tolerate this in the church. He's not going to tolerate. And so he says, for this reason, it says in verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, that is the deeds of diatrophies. For what reason? What reason is he going to call attention to his deeds? His refusal to cooperate with this letter that John had written. John says, I'm going to call him out. He's not going to get away with this. Now, what does he mean when he says, if I come? Look at verse 10. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds. It kind of takes away from the force. I'm going to get him when I get there, if I come. Is he saying, I'm not going to come? That's what it says in the NASB, at least. Is he saying, I'm not going to come, I might come? What's he saying here? Um, well, it's a very literal translation, but the idea has the, it's got the idea of when I come. Um, grammatically, the same grammar is used in 1 John 2.28. Look at 1 John 2.28. Just you'll, you'll see this. The same idea is translated here with the word when. 2.28, he says, Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming. And so he says, when Christ appears. We all know that Christ is coming. There's no doubt about that, right? Uh, we just don't know exactly when he's coming. And that's the idea. John is definitely coming to visit, <coughs> but they don't know when he's coming, is what he means by the phrase, if I come. And it's a, I know it's a translation is kind of weak there. But he is coming, definitely. And when he comes, he's going to put diatrophies in his place. He says, I will call attention to his deeds. Now, the ESV says, I will bring up what he is doing there. It has the idea of bringing to remembrance what Diotrephes has done. He's going to remind Diotrephes of what he's done. He's not going to forget what he's done. 
He's not going to forget his arrogance, and he's not going to let Diotrephes forget him either. He's going to confront Diotrephes. He's going to confront him and say, what are you doing? You're in the church of, of Christ. You can't behave this way. And so this is what he's going to do. He's going to remind him in no uncertain terms of what he's done. He says these are deeds which he does. In other words, Diotrephes is presently doing these deeds as John is writing the letter. Diotrephes is acting like this in the pre back then in the, in the, at the present time. And so every week when Diotrephes showed up to church, you could predict exactly what he was going to do. You could predict he was going to be overbearing. You could predict he was going to be an arrogant, proud, and puffed-up individual. That's how he acted every week. And I've seen people exactly like this in churches. He talks about the deeds which he does. And the deeds which he does are broken down into two categories. First of all, there's verbal attacks against John. And secondly, there's inhospitality. First of all, the verbal attacks. It says in verse 10, I'm going to call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Unjustly accusing us with wicked words. These attacks against John are vicious. They're hurtful. He's deliberately attacking John and making life miserable for him. The word wicked, by the way, is the same word used to describe the devil. In 1 John chapter 5, look at 1 John 5, 18 and 19. It says, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he was he who is born of God, but he was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. The evil one is the same root Greek word that the word wicked is in uh, Third John, and the evil one is Satan. Verse 19: We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Same word again. So these, the word wicked and the word evil one, come from the same root word. Diotrephes is literally lining up with the devil in his attacks against John. And this guy is influential in the church. And you think, well, that's strange, but it, it happens, though. He has become, Diotrephes has become an instrument in the hands of Satan. It says he's unjustly accusing John. That means he's, literally, it means he's talking nonsense. That word in secular Greek was used of one who was talking like a fool, talking of someone out of his mind. Diotrephes was acting like a fool in front of the church, in front of people, as he tried to slander John before them. And that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to do these words. It says here, he was not satisfied with this. In other words, the wicked words that came out spewing forth out of his mouth were not enough. It was only the beginning. There were wicked actions that followed the wicked words. And what were those wicked actions? Well, they're seen through inhospitality by not being hospitable. In fact, just the opposite of being hospitable. Because the inhospitality here expresses itself in three ways. Look at verse 10. First of all, it says that Diotrephes, not satisfied with wicked words alone, Diotrephes himself does not receive the brethren either. He does not receive the brethren. Now, that's just the opposite of Gaius. Gaius, you remember, treated the brethren, the missionary brethren he's talking about, uh, very well. He treated them with honor. Look at verse 5, even though they were strangers. He tells Gaius in verse 5, Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And then he says in verse 7, They've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. We should support such men. These are missionaries that they didn't know they were strangers to Gaius. And yet Gaius had the hospitality to accept them in and to show them love and to take care of them and support them and treat them right. And, and in fact, He's told to treat them in a manner worthy of God in verse 6, and that's what he did. He treated them properly in a manner worthy of God, but not Diotrephes. 
he didn't have the same reaction to these guys. He wouldn't allow them in his home. He wouldn't allow them in the church. And he didn't show any hospitality to them at all. Now, it could be this. Nobody knows exactly how this worked out in Third John. It could be there were more than one house church in this city. Diotrephes could have been in one. Gaius could have been in another. Nobody really knows. That could have been that way. But whatever the situation, Diotrephes did not treat the missionaries right. In fact, he treated them the same way John told true believers to teach heretical teachers. Just the opposite of hospitality. Look at Second John, verse 10. Second John 10. It says here, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. In other words, they had churches and houses. Do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And so, they, Dodgefies treated the missionary brethren like you would t- treat heretical teachers not let them in your church that's what he did he didn't receive the brethren and then in third john 10 it says here he forbids those who desire to do so there were people in the church that wanted to be hospitable to the missionaries the missionary brethren they wanted to treat them in a hospitable way but they were forbidden to by diatrophies he said no don't treat those guys with hospitality i don't want them here i'm running the show here you remember i I'm first. I love to be first. And so he wouldn't allow it. Imagine Mike saying to us when missionaries come, don't treat them hospitably. (laughs) Let's not put him up for the night. Greg Harris came, for example. We're not putting him in a hotel here. (laughs) We're not paying for his plane fare to get here. We're not going to treat him in a hospitable manner. That's ridiculous. But this is exactly what happened. He he, uh, forbade those who wanted to treat them hospitably to do so. It's amazing. And then thirdly, it says in verse 10, he puts them out of the church. Those who dared to show hospitality to the missionary brethren, he excommunicated them. Because of his influence, he had them put out of the church. He's so filled with pride. He's so filled with jealousy because he wants to be the leader. And he doesn't want to listen to John or anybody else. He turns the whole church upside down and does exactly the opposite of promoting the truth. He's not a man that is interested in the truth. The cause of Christ is hurt because of ambitious people like this in the church. And don't think it can't happen here. People rising up with ambition because they want to be somebody in the church. And don't think it's an isolated incident or a one-time event here. Because people act like this in churches. They really do. And the sad truth is throughout church history, people have acted like this in churches. And risen up and wanted a place of prominence in the church. They have their own agenda, and they want to promote their own agenda. And if you don't fall in line with their agenda, they're going to make life difficult on you. And I've seen this happen, uh, in, in, not in church history, but in, in recent times I've seen it happen. It's amazing how the authority of godly men has been challenged throughout the history of the church. I mean, why would you, for example, why would you have Jonathan Edwards preaching in your church after 22 years fire him? That's what they did. <laughs> you imagine looking back now? At that situation, you fired Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians, maybe the greatest theologian, some say, in, in, uh, in America ever. There was a famous Greek scholar who lived years ago named A.T. Robertson. He wrote the big, the big, thick book. Nobody, Everybody's afraid to read 1,500 pages of Greek grammar. We have it in the library. Nobody's read it, I'm sure. Uh, but sometime in the late 1800s, he wrote an article on diatrophies. All he did was explain the text. He was, you know, 
Guys write articles on the Bible, right? That's all he was doing. Write an article on Diotrephes and 3 John, explaining the text, explaining the Greek behind the text. He didn't name anybody in the, in, in the article, never said a name. He dealt only with the text of Scripture, of 3 John. As a result of this, 25 deacons from his, his uh, association, Southern Baptist Convention, got a hold of the article somehow. I think it was before it was actually printed for the public. They felt like they were personally attacked in this article <laughs> by, by what he had said, and they canceled their subscriptions to the paper that it was written in and stopped the, stopped the printing of that article because they felt like they were attacked even though he said nobody's name. He wasn't trying to attack anybody. He just talked about diatrophies in 3 John. They, but their consciences were so guilty because they were probably acting like diatrophies that they rose up against him and stopped the article. And so don't think that, and, and the funny thing is he never even said the first word about any of them at all. Don't think that same spirit of diatrophies is not alive today. It is. It's always around. Somebody told me in a church one time, personally told me, they said about a given pastor, they said, not Mike, they said, I will oppose that pastor as long as he's here. And I thought, what? What are you doing here? This is your, this is your goal in life, to oppose the pastor? And yet there's people like that. It's the mentality of a diatrophies. And like I said, it can happen in our own church. So it's a good warning for us. Right now we think, well, that couldn't happen here. It could happen here, maybe a year from now, maybe two years from now, five years from now, six months from now. Nobody knows. It could happen from an elder. It could come from a a deacon, it could come from a lay person in the church, anybody who gets enough, has enough influence and they're loud and they're boisterous and they put it across and people follow them, it happens all the time. I know of a church that split because a certain leadership in the church rose up and they were influential and they took a third of the church with them and started their own church down the road. So it happens all the time. So we've got to be on guard against a proud spirit, a haughty spirit like this. If Diotrephes was an elder, he certainly had no regard for the truth at all. He wasn't walking in the truth. He wasn't demonstrating the truth like Gaius was. In fact, he was living a lie with all this foolishness. And also, he had no regard, he had no love, regard for love between believers. Obviously, he didn't have that. John could never say of him as he did of Gaius in verse 1, I love him in the truth. I love Gaius in the truth. He couldn't say that about Diotrephes. His idiotrophies didn't have anything to do with the truth. In fact, he didn't love anybody but himself. You know, diatrophies teaches us our, our responsibility to take humility seriously. Ephesians chapter 4, this is why Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Well, that would have been good instruction for diatrophies, right? And then Paul says in Philippians 2.3, here's a good uh, memory verse for diatrophies, by the way. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. If you have this attitude of humility, it will, become, it will keep you from becoming a diatrophies. Well, John goes on in verse 11 of 3 John, with an application to this whole diatrophies business. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is, is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. He calls him beloved. Remember that 
John the Elder is addressing Gaius in this letter. And he's calling him beloved earlier in the book. He's calls him beloved again, still talking to Gaius. Beloved Gaius, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The word imitate has the idea of, of observing, observing a course of action and then copying it. Like maybe a little child would copy, you know, would see what his father does and copy him and do what he does. And he says, make sure you, Gaius, that you imitate what's good and not what's evil. Imitate people that are good and not what's evil. By the way, it's okay to imitate a believer if they're following Christ. That's talked about in different parts of the New Testament. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. And so you find a believer who's following Christ, it's okay to imitate that believer. Hebrews 13, 7, in regard to spiritual leaders, it says this, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. He says to imitate their faith. So it's okay to do that. Imitate those who are setting a godly example. But, he says, do not imitate those who are setting an ungodly example. Now, that statement applies to anything in general that's evil, but in this context, he's got reference, he's making reference to Diotrephes. Diotrephes is not a good man. Is he in the church? Yes. Is he a good man? No. He's an evil man. Now, why would Diotrephes be concerned, uh, why would John, rather, be concerned that Gaius would follow in the footsteps of a Diotrephes? Why would he be concerned about that? After all, he said about, about Gaius. It's because evil is infectious in the church. Evil is infectious. All it takes is one person to set a bad example and to get a following, and then you got a lot of people following that person. It happens all the time. Why do you think Jim Jones could take a thousand people with him from California to Guyana, South America, and have them all drink Kool-Aid and they all died? All it takes is one bad apple and you have a bunch of people following him. Or as the New Testament says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so you've got to be careful. It just took ten men to influence the nation of Israel to not go in the promised land. They said, we can't go in, can't take the land, too many giants too many problems, we can't face all this, and everybody listened to them, and that whole generation, their carcasses fell in the wilderness, and they all died, except for Joshua and Caleb, it says. So be careful who you follow. Be careful of the example you set in your words and deeds. Of course, we are to follow Christ, we know that, but there are godly examples for us that we can be encouraged by. Well, John makes a very blunt statement at the end of verse 11. He says, the one who does good is of God, the one who does evil has not seen God. The person, in other words, who does good as a course of his life is, is a person who knows God. He's born of God. He, he, he knows God. He follows God. And the good works that he do, does as a rule of life show that he's saved. His works show that he's saved. And if 1 John teaches the same thing, it shows that this is a test of whether a believer is truly saved or not. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, verse 3. It says there, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so our works show that verify that we're believers, but the opposite is true as well. The man who does evil as a way of life has not seen God. In 1 John 3, 6, that word seeing God is equated with knowing God. The person who, has, who does evil has not seen God. In other words, he doesn't know God. His life is characterized by evil. He shows by his actions that he doesn't know God. You can tell by, by what he does. He doesn't know God. He's spiritually blind. 
So verse 11 is an indictment of Diotrephes. John indicts him. His words, his actions clearly demonstrate he has no interest in God. He doesn't care about God or the things of God. He belongs to his father, the devil. He does the bidding of his father, and there are many in churches just like him, many people like him. They rise up in a church. They take a position, a position of leadership somehow. It's given to them because there's no discernment in the church. They exert great influence in the church. They're blind to the truth. So we've got to pray that we don't have, we don't, we come like that. We don't have a church that becomes led by people like Diotrephes. And they're out there. They want to impose themselves on an unsuspecting church. So we've got to be careful. So unlike Gaius, who was living a demonstration of demonstrating the truth, Diotrephes was living in opposition to the truth. And that brings us to the third man, Demetrius. Verse 12, in Demetrius, there's a testimony to the truth. A testimony to the truth. It says in verse 12, Demetrius has received a, a testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. While Diotrephes is a bad example to follow, Demetrius is a good example to follow. He's presenting the contrast now. Demetrius is a man worthy of imitating, a man who follows Christ, obviously. And we talk about role models all the time, right, in our society. Demetrius was a role model to follow. He's what it was, you know, if you follow him, you're following Christ. And it's, and it's possible that Demetrius was the guy who delivered this letter uh, to the church from John, by the way. And so it could be for that reason John is commending him to the church. And there, in verse 12, you have this threefold testimony to Gaius. First of all, there's the general testimony. It says, Demetrius has received the testimony from everyone. That's amazing. He's, a, he's, he's received the approval of everyone. He is uh, well spoken of by everyone. It's the same idea as in Acts 16.2, where Timothy, Paul was choosing Timothy to go with him. And it says, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And so the reputation of Demas was backed by, was solid. It was backed by people. Everybody thought well of Demetrius. They thought highly of him. It wasn't just some biased friend of Demetrius who said this. Everyone said Demetrius is, is a good guy. He's a guy who follows Christ. And nobody had anything bad to say about him. He was a man of integrity. So there was a general testimony. And then there was a testimony of truth itself. It says in verse 12, and, and from the truth itself. He's, he has a testimony from the truth itself. And that's interesting. The truth, the very truth itself as revealed in the word of God showed that Demetrius was a man who could be trusted. It showed he had the right kind of character because he lived what the scripture taught. And so the truth could only verify what was true in his life, that he, he was living a testimony to the truth. His life lined up with the truth and didn't contradict it. So you have this testimony from the truth itself. And then there's a the testimony of John. It says, and we add our testimony in verse 12. By the way, the we and the are are probably other people in John's church that are backing John as well and saying, yeah, we can give our testimony to this. We believe that Demetrius is a man who's a man of character and integrity. <clears throat> Why would you ever question the, the, the testimony of John anyway, right? You wouldn't question that because these apostles were the most reliable witnesses on the planet. And so if he says that this guy is a good guy, I'm going to believe what he says. And then John adds there in verse 12, you know our testimony is true. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt that for a minute. I'm sure that it is. 
It reminds you of what he said in John 21, 24. John said, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Definitely do. So we've got this threefold testimony to the credibility of Demetrius. And then John concludes his letter in the, first, the, following, the last three verses, 13 to 15. He says, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. This conclusion is very similar to the one in 2 John, uh, if you want to read that later on. There are many things John would like to say to this church, many things, no doubt, and we don't know what they are, but he'd rather wait to get there in person to talk to them. He wants to see them up close and personal. He wants to interact with them. He wants to be there with them to see their reaction. You know, in Ryan's church in Taipei, they are watching Pastor John Shem, the pastor of the church in Berkeley, preach to them on a video, a screen they have here. And, and for an hour and a half, yes, he preaches for an hour and a half every time. And Ryan has cut that back to 45 minutes on Wednesday night. He's cut it in half and makes it two parts. But for an hour and a half, they watch this guy preach on the video screen, on the video. And, uh, you know, Ryan wishes he could preach every week, but he's tied up in the language study and he can't do it. He doesn't have the time to prepare and all that. And, and, you know, it's just not the same as having a real live flesh and blood guy up there preaching to you as somebody on the screen. But it's the best they can do right now. It's all they can do right now. It's not ideal, but it's all they can do. And in the same way, John the Elder wants to be face-to-face with these people and see them in person. And that's the best thing, and that's what he wants. He wants to visit them soon, verse 14. We said earlier, he said, if I come, meaning when I come. Now he says, I hope to see you shortly. We'll speak face-to-face. So you can see his intent is to go visit them. He doesn't tell them exactly when, but shortly. He wishes them peace, and that's appropriate in light of the turmoil created by diatrophies. And he says, the friends greet you. That's an unusual way to greet the people. The friends greet you. Um, but it could be a takeoff on, on John 13 where Jesus said no longer to his disciples, he said, no longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. He could be picking up on these words. And so he says, the friends greet you. And uh, by the way, Shouldn't the believers in a church be the best of friends? Shouldn't our, our best friends, our closest friends, be those who know the Lord, who are believers in Christ? It just stands to reason. And then he says at the end, greet the friends by name. So what have we seen in Third John? We see three men who bear testimony to the truth because, honestly, everyone has a testimony, to, has bears some kind of relationship to the truth, whether it's positive or negative. Everyone does. Gaius was a man who, by his life, demonstrated the truth. How was he able to do that? It says in, in John, 3 John 2, his soul prospered because he loved the truth. He fed on the truth. He took in the truth, and so his soul prospered. And as a result of that, his soul prosperity, he walked in the truth. And so he was able to demonstrate the truth and become a fellow worker with the truth, verse 8. He helped other people. As his soul prospered, so did his actions toward other people. And then Demetrius, likewise, was so in tune with the truth that it became obvious to everyone. Everyone said, wow, Demetrius is a man who lives the truth. And even the truth itself testifies and verifies his lifestyle. But unfortunately, there will always be those like Diotrephes who live in opposition to the truth. They want nothing to do with it. They're like tares among the wheat that Christ talked about. 
They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're not the real thing. And as they make their presence known in the church, it will soon become obvious to the discerning church that they do not belong to God at all. So the relationship to the truth is, is that they reject the truth. And they stand in opposition to it. Let me ask you a question. What is your relationship to the truth tonight? Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, or have you rejected him? Are you walking with the Lord tonight, or do you live in opposition to him? Does your lifestyle reflect the truth? Does it, or does the truth expose you as a phony? The truth either exposes us or it verifies what we're doing. And as I said last a couple weeks ago, the greatest joy a pastor can have is to know that his people in his church are loving the truth, they're abiding the truth, they're living the truth. As John said in verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. So let's pray tonight as we close out. Let's pray tonight that we will incarnate the truth as God wants us to so that others may see that the truth, what the truth of the gospel really looks like in the followers of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this time together and for the instruction you give us in 3 John. We pray that we would be like a Demetrius, like a Gaius, those that would live out the truth in their lives. Pray we would shun and not, and we pray that we would never have a diatrophies in our church, someone who was interested in only in being first, but we pray always that this Christ would put Christ first in our church and also in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.